The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. We're turning again to the book of Amos in chapter 9. And this time we're planning to spend our time to look again at the first part of chapter 9. We see in chapter 9 that in the first part, in verses 1 through 10, the focus is on judgment. And then we see a change that starts in verse 11 and goes through verse 15. And that is a section which speaks about a future, a future that was far distant from Amos and his audience and is a future also to us. We don't know how distant, but it is yet future. That's what we call the eschatological future. Now, let me begin again and look here. I put at the top of my notes that God is sovereign over all. We know this to be the case. You can't read through scripture and believe what it says and come away not believing that God is sovereign. So what does it mean to say he is sovereign? He's in control. Nothing is happening by surprise to him. Nothing is happening which is beyond his control. <laughs> that is beyond his understanding. That is beyond his knowledge. But it's, it's beyond that. In this first part of Amos, in verse 1, where Amos says, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. And we talked about that before, that if we can think about the altar that was there in Bethel and how Jeroboam the first built that altar and had the golden calf and all the false worship that was going on there, even priests who were not proper priests, who were not of the Levites, to minister in that place. And so then the words following that one in verse 2, it says, strike the doorpost that the thresholds may shake. And so the idea is that the whole thing, that structure, if we're picturing it, it will come to collapse and will collapse upon those who were within that structure. We made a reference to what happened with Samson uh, when he was in that uh, pagan place and he grabbed the pillars and called that temple to fall, and all those people who died. Is that kind of a picture? It's a judgment narrative, a judgment idea here. So he said, breaks on the heads of all of them. But now, I, the last time I had us, so he says, I will, and here's one of those again, and we are re revising or reviewing what we had before, where he says, I will slay the last of them 
with a sword. That means that no one's escaping. He who flees from them shall not get away. And he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. When we think about Amos being a speaker who is presenting a message to a people, and he's being used by God to make certain that they can hear the words that they need to hear. But I will submit to you that they don't merely need to hear the words. They need to hear and understand the implications of the words. They need not merely to hear, but also to understand. And then to properly, or, or to give a good response to that. And so the hearing physically is the first part of it. Because if they fail to have good hearing that is sufficient to be able to hear the words the prophet is given, then they can't get to the next part to be able to say, well, I understand it, and now I'm going to respond properly to it. And so the words were given out. When I, in some of these studies, and I look at some of what the various authors write, and it's kind of fascinating some of them talk about the structure of the language and the way that the prophet is using the language. And I wish I was able to do a better job with understanding and presenting and conveying some of that flavor. But we can understand that the message is delivered in terms and in expressions that are designed with the purpose that the people who are hearing it can get an understanding of what is being said. It is not just a mishmash of words drawn from some, but there is design and structure and order with the purpose of making it explicit and clear. One of the things that does is to leave the hearers without excuse when the prophet has done his job because he's merely a messenger doing his job. Now, so this scripture says here that Israel cannot escape from the common judgment. No matter what they might try, there was no escape for them. Now, it's not a stretch at all to say, and I, admit, I said it before, that for any person who will go about with the goal of escaping from God's notice or from judgment or from having to stand before him, it would all fail. In this first part of chapter 9 of Amos, we see five hypothetical, I call them hypotheticals, or hypothetical escape routes from judgment, potentially hypothetical 
escape routes from judgment. And this is a part of what I mean about the language. Because it lists here that there are things that someone might be willing to do in their effort to escape. And some of those things are listed here. And to some minds, in certain circumstances, some of these might seem like reasonable routes. And in certain situations, natural situations, not escaping from God, but, you know, some of these things maybe would be pertinent ways of escape from an enemy. Particularly a couple of these, but... And so in verse number two, it says that hypothetically, maybe a person could escape by digging. It says digging into hell, into Sheol, into the place of the dead. Maybe that could be a potential escape route. So that's going down. Or maybe to climb into heaven. Down maybe doesn't work, so going up. Climb into heaven. But the prophet Amos says that God's word is that also will fail. It won't work. So having gone low and having gone high, but what about Mount Carmel? That was a place where refugees or people who were escaping from other people could go and hide because of the nature of the terrain, being a rough terrain, dense forests, lots of caves and caverns. It could be a very good place. And, I'm, and I understand from history that it was a good place for a whole lot of people who hide it from others. others. But it won't work in an effort to hide from God. And so we have digging into hell and climbing into heaven and going on to the top of Mount Carmel, uh, probably the largest, the highest elevation area in the northern kingdom. And all of these would be failures. So what about the sea? Well, maybe perhaps going to the bottom of the sea. Maybe that could be an escape route. But you know, the sovereign God has control of the sea creatures too. And even if a person could escape to the bottom of the sea, this verse, this tells us here that it would not be sufficient. In verse number three, the second part of it, Though they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. We read about that Leviathan serpent in Job, an awesome creature, a mighty creature. But God says, I have control, and I can tell that thing what to do. As awesome as it is, I can tell it what to do. And if you try to escape from me at the bottom of the sea, I will tell that thing to bite you. No escape. No way to go. So God is sovereign. He's sovereign over those things too. And one of the things that's quite interesting is 
is that, you know, we talk about the sea creature. So God is able to use one sea creature to preserve life, as he did with Jonah, preparing that large fish for the preservation of life. But here it says these ones, God will use sea creature to take the life. That means he's the sovereign God. He's in control, and he controls all those things. None of those things operate or exist in independence from him. And so they are instruments of God, whether for the preservation of life or for the carrying out of the judgment that God has declared will be the portion. And then there is in this passage another potential hypothetical that one might think could be an escape route. And that one is to go into captivity. What if I voluntarily or involuntarily get captured by the enemy and get taken into enemy territory? Will that protect me? Will I be able to now escape? And the answer is no. That won't work either. In verse 4, though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. And so we see these sad words that are uttered here at the end of verse number 4. And it says that God, this is what God says, he says, I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. Those are some difficult words to hear. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. So there's no way no place to escape from God. It, it won't work. God is sovereign. He is the sovereign of the universe. He is in control of the land and the seas. The heavens above and Sheol below. Whatever it is, He's in control of it all. There's no escape from him. Now, in verse number five, it says, The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts. Touches the earth and it melts. That's a pretty powerful word. That could be a reference to earthquakes, mudslides, those kinds of things. But, you know, with us, we can put our hand on an ice cube and watch it melt. The effect of that, it just melts away. But I want to draw us back again to what is mentioned here in this chapter, uh, in this uh, book of Hieramus, in reference to what it says here. You notice that the idea of an earthquake, and I said, you know, this may be a reference to the idea of earthquake, 
in the first chapter, it talks about two years before the earthquake. So the, so the idea of an earthquake was something that was familiar to the people. They knew what that kind of thing meant. An earthquake brings on all kinds of calamity. And so that could be what, he's, what the reference is here. But again, in verse number 8 of chapter 8, it says, Shall the land not tremble for this? And everyone mourn who dwells in it. All of it shall swell like the river, heave and subside like the river of Egypt. That's the movements of God. So God is in control of the earthquakes and the movements of the earth and whatever happens with it. It's, it's, it's all within his control, and he's able to use it. In verse number six, he builds, he who builds his lairs in the sky and has founded his strata, or his strata in the earth. I looked at that and I thought, this is quite an interesting structure here. What is he talking about there? I looked at other translations and looked at what they put in in the way they render that. I put one here in my notes from the NIV. The NET also has an interesting rendering, but it says here in the NIV, it says, he builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets the foundations on the earth. He calls the water of the sea and pours them out on the face of the land. So it's it's still it's an idea of the majesty of God and how he is in control of all these things. There are different ideas as to how exactly that it should be understood. But it is showing that God is sovereign over the space that is in the universe. All of that is under his, under his command. Just uh, look back, if you, you're pleased to turn back there, to chapter 5, also in Amos. In verse number 8, it says this. He made the Pleiades and Orion. He turns the shadow of death into morning and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. And so this sounds like similar kinds of language as to what he's using here. I think about this as lofty language. I also to put down a couple of references from Psalm 104. In verse number 3 in Psalm 104, it says, He lays the beams in his upper chambers in the waters, who makes the cloud, the clouds his chariot, who walks on the wings of the wind. And in verse 13, he waters the hills from the upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your works. So when we look at the cycles of what happens in the earth, and it's always an amazing thing when we think about a cloud letting water come out and watering the earth. And then we understand water going up into the clouds 
and then at the proper time, <laughs> it comes down. God is in control of all that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. Just the notion of that. He said, well, why is that water going up? And then now it's coming back down again. That's God's doing. So he is the sovereign of the universe. Now, one of the things that's interesting here, so I pointed out all these things, that these five hypothetical escape routes, if we were to think about it like that. This is addressed to a specific people in this text. And in Amos chapter 3, And I think I have it here. I'm trying to see if I wrote down a correct reference. But anyway, this is what it, it, the people whom God is speaking about here. He says, I have chosen you alone from all the clans of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you. So God is saying, Yes, you are a special people. You, you are special. I chose you. But because I chose you, I'm going to punish you as well. So you're going to get your punishment. Now look at the next part of what it says here. I'm going to go down now to verse number 7. Are you not like the people of Ethiopia, O children of Israel? They knew that they were God's special people. But here he's saying, aren't you like Ethiopia, O children of Israel, says the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaptor, the Syrians from Kerr. So he's now giving them an unfavorable comparison. And he's saying the movements of people or of people groups, those were his doings. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, let's look at what it says there. In Deuteronomy chapter 2, and verse 23, and I'm just jumping right into the middle of the context here, but I think you'll see the point. And the Avim who dwelt in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftorim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and dwelt in their place. The movements of people, that's God's doing. And so he, he was in charge of that, those people from Crete to go to there. Also in Amos chapter 1 and verse 5 is another one of those which is relevant here. 
And he says there in verse number five of chapter one in Amos, I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon and the one who holds a scepter from Beth Eden, the people of Syria shall go captive to Ker. These movements of people, God is saying he's in control of those. And so he said to Israel, you, you've been a special people, yes. But it doesn't exempt you. That's an interesting thought. Because they took the idea that because they were God's special people, that somehow they would be exempt from having to face him with regard to their own iniquity. But God says that's not the way it is. That he's in control of the movements of people. In verse number 8 it says, Behold the eyes of the Lord, God, are on, and it says, the sinful kingdom. The eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom. Now it would only be the sinful who would be interested in trying to hide from God. But so God is saying, but my eyes are on you. I remember one young lady here who used to come up to folks and she would say, I got my eyes on you. <laughs> that brother's smiling. I think he knows who used to say that, his daughter. <laughs> but the Lord is saying this, behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom. So what they are doing and what they're up to, God knows all about it. And he says, I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Now, that's a pretty harsh term for these people whom God has chosen as his special people. And repeatedly over and over again, called them my people. And he's, here he says, I will destroy them from the face of the earth. What a harsh thing to say. Then, notice, so the, so the sinful kingdom will be destroyed. Sumer, uh, the Assyrians will be the instrument of God. And he will destroy them from the face of the earth. One of the things that I looked at now is we, we see in history, starting, you know, we talked about the northern kingdom being decimated by the Assyrians in around 722. And I said before that, so that it was never going to be reconstituted as a separate independent nation. In the eschatological future, when God brings Israel back to his land, it won't be a southern and a northern kingdom. It would just be one. But in 722, that's when this was going to be fulfilled there for the northern kingdom. But then the southern kingdom would also come under the judgment of God. They have some reprieve, but between 606 and 586 B.C., the southern kingdom met with the same kind of a result. 
at the hands of the Babylonians. And that was a difficult thing. And there were other things that happened. I put down some of those things. I, I traced some of these things of what some of the persecutions have been against Jewish people. From here, we can see all the way down to our own land, we can see major movements against Israel and the Israelites here. In 168 B.C., it says they were driven out of their land, uh, out of their cities by Syrians. In 66 to 72 A.D., driven out of cities by Romans. In the 8th century, conquered by Muslims. 11th century, conquered by Turks. 12th and 13th century, suffering at the hands of the Crusaders. The 13th century, papal persecutions. 14th century, expelled from Paris by Philip the Fair. And it goes on and on and on. And so one of the things that I found that was interesting is you probably have heard the phrase the ten lost tribes of Israel. And you know where that idea comes from. It's the decimation of the northern kingdom. They're not lost tribes, but they have been described that way. <laughs> because God is going to bring them back. And they're going to be what he intended them to be in the land that he gave to them. But the persecutions, just enormous. And so the consequences, sin has consequences. And it may not just be a consequence that visits in one generation. Devastating consequences. But if we go back now to chapter 8, I mean chapter 9 of Amos, and look at the second part, of verse 8. After God said, I will destroy it, Israel, the northern, from the face of the earth, he says, yet I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. So he says, in one phrase, destroy it from the face of the earth, but I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. Now, I think that expression is a problem for the systems of theology that some people hold. Because if he's not going to utterly destroy the house of Jacob, then there are certain theological systems that don't fit with that. Those who say there's no future for Israel... Well, if there's no future for Israel, then that seems to be equivalent to the idea that this statement is not a correct one. But he says, no, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, says the Lord. See, so that's God's saying and he's doing. Then now notice in verse number nine. Number nine here, it has an interesting uh, phrase, a word in there, a, a sieve. For surely I will command and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations as grain is sifted in a sieve. And then it says, yet not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. So we know what a sieve is doing. He's talking about shaking the nations in Israel and shaking, shaking, shaking. 
So if you have something on the sieve and you're shaking it, what's happening? Well, we know what's happening. A separation is happening. <laughs> a separation. The things that come go through the sieve are separated from those that remain. And so by that means then, God is saying, there are some who are going to be preserved, and there are others who will be destroyed. And this idea of the sieve shows the separation as to how he goes about that. In the various ones that I was reading, there was some question here as to how, in terms of the grain and the sieve and all that, and or the word that's translated here as, gra- as grain, some use the word pebble, and so it becomes a little bit concerning to some as to is the grain Israel or is the grain the bad or just how is that to be understood according to the language, the way that the use of the words of the language are. But for me, that's not really an issue because we know what the sieve does and it's separating the good and the evil. And that's what the point is. The point is that God is making the separation. So that in verse number 10 then, it says this. It says, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. He still says my people because those were the elected people of God. But he says that all the sinners. So that the judgment is a discriminating judgment. It's not just a blanket judgment that everybody gets the same fate. But it's a discriminating thing. The sieve is showing that. And so the sieve then is the means by which there is the collection of all the sinners that God will put to death who say, now notice the last part of verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. Now, essentially what that tells us is is that Amos wasn't the only messenger and that the message that Amos was bearing was not the only message that was in the minds of the people. There were other messengers. pastor was teaching to us regarding deception, being deceived. There are messengers of deceit. And I would say all who adopted this idea that the calamity shall not overtake or confront us. Now, why would they think that? Well, because they know that they are God's special people. They know they were specially selected. And so they had a false idea attached to that. But God says, no, that doesn't exempt you. Actually, what that does is gives you a higher level of accountability, of responsibility. To whom much is given, much is required. And so an enormous gift to them was that they would be the instruments through which God would bring his word into the world. 
And so that doesn't give them a route of escape. It makes them a conduit, if they will, to do his will. But it will not escape, be an escape route for them. And so when we listed those escape routes, and I listed five, but we might add this too as a number six as a potential escape route in the minds of the people. The idea that we can't escape because we are God's special people. <laughs> and God says, no, you can't do that. And so God is sovereign. He's sovereign over all, over the nations, over the peoples of the nations, over the land, over the land masses, over the sea, the sky, everything. God is in control of it all. And so the only proper thing for the Israelites to whom Amos was speaking was for them to pay attention and to say, this is what God is saying. Now, I need to align myself with what he is saying. Otherwise, the judgment will be my portion. And that's the way it is for all of us. The challenge to work at having ourselves properly aligned with what God says. A continuing challenge. That's why we keep right on looking into the scriptures and asking God for his help because we know that the best for us comes through our proper alignment with him. And that proper alignment can't happen or even begin to be in process or until we are in a right understanding as sinners for whom a Savior has been given. And we have believed and understood and we have made our confession to God to understand and now have him as our Savior. Let's close with prayer. Our Father, we thank you. We know that it is all of you and not of ourselves that we have life, eternal life, through the means of him who died for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen.